The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to take a moment to welcome members of our armed forces, especially those of you who are serving our country in remote locations and tuning in over the Internet today. I also want to welcome new listeners joining us in San Francisco, Miami, Chicago, Atlanta, Philadelphia, Denver, New York City, and from coast to coast, including new friends in Hawaii and Alaska. Thank you for your emails and letters, and most of all, for making us part of your Newsweek. In just a moment, we're going to take a break from politics to talk about America's ability to compete in a global economy. And who better to turn to than the former head of IBM, once the world's largest information technology company. Mr. Sam Palmasano will be joining us to talk about how globalization and the accelerating speed of change requires companies to adopt new technologies, methods, and business models faster than ever before. We're going to find out what American businesses must do to remain competitive from the man who saw IBM through one of the most radical transformations in the company's history. But before Mr. Palmasano joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Samuel J. Palmasana grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. In addition to being a disciplined student at Johns Hopkins University, Palmasana was a gifted football player who might have ended up playing for the Oakland Raiders had fate not intervened. In 1973, Palmasano joined IBM as a salesman, and it was from here that he worked himself up the corporate ladder. By 1997, he was appointed Senior Vice President of the Personal Systems Group, and two years later, Senior VP of IBM Global Services, and from here, Senior Vice President of Enterprise Systems. In 2000, Palmasano was elected the Chief Operating Officer for IBM, and in 2003 was named CEO following the legendary Louis Gerster. Palmasano was responsible for IBM's acquisition of PricewaterhouseCooper and focusing IBM on the high-margin, high-end solutions business away from the company's personal computing products. Though he was responsible for many controversial decisions, his vision of where computing was headed proved to be right. Mr. Palmasano stepped down from IBM in 2011, and since that time he has served on the board of ExxonMobil, acted as an advisor to Bloomberg LP, and was appointed by President Obama to become vice chairman of the new White House Cybersecurity Commission. He is also the chairman of the Center for Global Enterprise. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, Mr. Samuel Palmasano. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Palmasano. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. Well, the two big topics this election seem to be the economy and security. And you recently wrote a book which lays out what American businesses must do to compete in a global economy. Tell us about some of the key principles that you uncover in your book. Well, thank you. Yeah, the key point is that the world continues to economically integrate, although the economic environment is slower, I think, than anyone would like. That's a global statement as well as a U.S. statement, but U.S. being the largest economy certainly has an impact on that. So I believe that you have two things going on. You have this uh, economically the world continues to integrate 
And then technology, as I say, is on steroids. And they have massive acceleration in technology uh, through these companies, not just social media companies like Facebook, et cetera, but, and Twitter. But beyond that, you have these, they're referred to as platform companies, Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, et cetera, where basically they create a technology-driven global support system, and then they just continue to expand and grow quickly around the globe, and they enter countries at a very, very rapid pace. So technology is enabling this massive transformation and letting these startups that I used to say in IBM's history, maybe it would take us 50 years to get to 30 countries, and Uber's probably in 60 or 70 countries in five years. So, but that's all enabled by, by technology. So you have two factors that are converging. One is there's uh, pressure on the economic growth, so therefore people are looking to grow in u- unique and creative ways. And there's an alternative that's driven off technology where these uh, companies, these startups, as well as larger companies now, are building platforms that allow them to be very agile and very fast. And the consumer adoption is very rapid. You point out that uh, in 2002, only 9% of adults owned cell phones in Kenya. And in roughly uh, 10 years, that number shot up from 9 to 82%. That's historic. Yeah, if you look at adoption rates of technology, you can go back to, you know, televisions and PCs and mainframe computers and these adoption rates today with mobility are just like off the charts. I mean, they're orders of magnitude faster than uh, anything we've ever seen on any technology, even electricity. You can go back to water, power, electricity, etc. So you have this world now that is totally connected through the internet, through their cell phone, which is very affordable to them, and allows uh, people to engage in interconnection uh, through like-minded people communicating or people of divergent points of view uh, through social media, Twitter, what have you, or Facebook or Instagram. At the same time, you have businesses that are able to reach, you know, uh, really millions of people very, very efficiently and very quickly uh, without the necessity to physically have operations all over the globe. So these two phenomena, one, the consumer perspective where people ideas fly quickly, I mean, good or bad, and you, there's, as you know, there's pros and cons to that. Um, at the same time, business models can grow and expand very, very quickly, which is, represents economic growth. Uh, all are very positive. Now, with that comes security risk, as you kind of alluded to in your introduction with one of the concerns. And maybe I'll save my comments there to later. But it does branch. It does bring on uh, the security issue. Of not, there's a privacy issue to the individual, and clearly there's a security issue to companies and to governments around the world. Now, this pace of change is really wreaking havoc for large, established global companies, the IBMs of the world, the General Electrics of the world. Um, As you point out, these disruptors, the Airbnbs, the Twitters, the Ubers, they weren't even around in 2005. Absolutely. So they suddenly appear and everything changes. Uh, For a large company, how can they possibly keep up? Well, this is one of the things we'll cover in the book. It's the pace of innovation. It's one of the chapters I allude to, as well as Jerry Yang, you know, a good friend of mine who lives out in Silicon Valley. Uh, he, he was the founder of Yahoo, and now he's been an active partner in Alibaba in today's environment. He's a very, very bright young man. It's young relative to me, as I say, I should be kind of counseled that, because he probably would view himself not so young anymore. He's been out of Stanford <laughs> for a while, but young relative to me. But the, the point of it is that if you are a, a company today, uh, I think the uh, the expansion globally is um, it's becoming a little more challenging, but that's based on you know political trends that exist at the moment. I don't think they'll be sustainable, but they are what they are for the moment. But in addition to that, you have this incredible ability to scale these technologies and these superior business models, which are a challenge. I mean. You know, if you look at technology and industry I'm more familiar with, enterprise computing companies have not done as well as consumer computing companies. That's a growth statement as well as a stock performance statement. And it's, and it's the entire space. It's IBM, Dell, well, Dell's not private, but HP, Cisco, SAP, you know, uh, EMC, which is now part of the Dell deal. Yes. But you think the classical leaders in enterprise technology, they have not been able to grow Whereas these, these, they call them the fangs, you know, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera, Google, uh, are, and Netflix are growing like crazy. Um, and they're growing like crazy because they've adopted these new technological models. Now, I mean, if I'm a large company, you know, that's, I've just kind of given you the facts. 
I believe there's a tremendous opportunity for large companies to adopt these technologies and be every bit as agile and fast. The, in the book, I comment uh, the fact that the, the con- we wrote about a concept in 2006 in Foreign Affairs. I penned a piece. Now, we're going to have to, unfortunately, stop you there and take a hard break. But when we come back, let's pick up the story there. Uh, how do these large companies keep up? And, and you uh, point to a specific model in your book so we can address that. We're going to take that first break, but stay where you are. We'll be right back with more from Sam Palmisano. You're listening to the Costa Report. Imagine hearing the words, your child has cancer. The emotional impact is staggering. They tell you that treatment may last for years. And you travel the long road between hospital and home. Your financial worries multiply. And you want to stay strong for everyone, especially your child. But nobody understands. Your friends and family don't get it. Where do you turn? For the last 18 years, Jacob's Heart has provided essential support to families enduring the unimaginable. We have been there from the time of diagnosis all the way through the course of treatment, regardless of the outcome. With no government funding and no reimbursement for services, Jacob's Heart relies 100% on support from our community to make miracles happen for families. Please support Jacob's Heart by going to our website, jacobsheart.org. Or call us at 831-724-9100. Make a difference in the life of a child. Thank you. Every day our world gets more complicated. Not only is new information coming at us faster than we can manage, new regulations, technology, and the effects of globalization have made it much more difficult to succeed. That's why I wrote The Watchman's Rattle, a book that, for the first time, explains how complexity makes it hard to separate facts from fiction and eventually causes us to make important decisions based on unproven beliefs. And not just us, our leaders also fall prey to this phenomena. But here's the good news. Once you know the symptoms to watch for, you can safeguard against them. So please, go to RebeccaCosta.com. That's RebeccaCosta.com and order your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. It only takes a few minutes and the shipping is free. That's RebeccaCosta.com. Do it now. You'll be glad you did. Hi, registered pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years. And what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, it may change your life. Our world is lit and energized from the light released from the sun in the form of waves, two of which are known as UVA and UVB, and are invisible and associated with the aging, dangerous, and sometimes deadly effects conventionally attributed to solar radiation. UVA waves are linked to damage in the lower levels of the skin and can show up as wrinkles, fine lines, and other indicators of photo damage. Solar rays of UVA length can penetrate through glass windows and remain constant all year long, making them a troublesome source of skin aging January through December. The other solar wave, UVB, is the cause of sunburning, skin redness, and eye damage. On a positive note, UVB is responsible for converting cholesterol found in considerable quantities in the skin into vitamin D. Most chemical sunscreening ingredients block UVB, a couple will block UVA, but the only way to get truly broad-spectrum sun protection from all rays is to use zinc oxide and titanium dioxide, which act to reflect all the sun rays, including UVA and UVB refracting them in their crystalline structure like a reflection in a mirror. And as far as overall sun safety goes, don't be misled by SPF, which is only an indicator of UVB protection and provides no information about shielding from UVA. That means that SPF is only a measurement of how well a product can help prevent sunburns and not an indicator of protection from wrinkles, skin aging, or cancer. Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos too at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. Cohealth.com. 
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is the former CEO of IBM, Mr. Sam Palmasano. And before we went to break, you were just beginning to talk about how larger, mature corporations can adopt the technologies and business models of today's Twitters and Ubers. Yeah, hi, Rebecca, and thank you for having me back. The the, the point I make in the book called Growing Global is that fundamentally these business models or these platforms are also available to be exploited by you know, existing enterprises and companies of the, a lot, around a long time, whether that's you know, whomever, whether it's a GEHU mentioned or an IBM or Motorola or what have you today, American Express, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just trying to name a few of the sectors. The point of it being is that in the first book, which we call the Rethink, which is we, 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 we talked about a model for global enterprise. And fundamentally what we talked about in that model is to use a global scale to make it efficiency in the back office. But at the same time, and by that I mean it's common systems that you use in all of your operations around the world when I talk about back office global scale. But mm-hmm. at the same time, uh, what you could do, that would give you agility from an innovation perspective, that's product development, as well as market entry, as entering new customers, you know, new marketplaces. Uh, in IBM's cases, we grew quickly in China and India and Brazil and places like that. It was a much more agile business model. So what you see today, what happened in that, a lot of people uh, picked up on the concept, uh, not just because we talked about it, but I think it, you know, it was pretty much viewed as a credible way to, to deal with the new structure of a company. But what happened uh, after 08, more of the focus became cost-driven versus speed-driven, uh, which is why we got into the global growing, and the growing global rather, the next book, point being that there's no reason why you could not take the agility that we talked about of these platform businesses, Airbnb, Uber, what have you, and do the same thing as a company and build this very, very robust, fast platform. You tend to put in a cloud today, which is a shared, which reduces your cost of the IT infrastructure, but structure the applications in such a way that it's very easy to add new function or new customers and do it very, very quickly. That's what allows those companies to grow so fast because think about the old model for people to grow around the world, you had to put manufacturing capacity because you built things. Or even if you were in services industries, you'd have to open up operations or, you know, kind of capability centers around the globe. This is all done through the Internet today, and all those capabilities exist using consumer-based technologies, which are very easy, but also gives you great speed and great flexibility. Right. So what you're talking about is building in adaptability, and yet corporations over time, we can look and see that many of their processes, uh, even the people that are working there for 30 and 40 years, become institutionalized. And it seems like these larger companies, these more mature companies, are constantly fighting the battle of institutionalization. Hello? Hello, Mr. Palmasano? Uh, Rebecca, something happened with the line. Can you hear me now? Yes, yes, we got you back. Good. Okay, good. I'm on a landline, but I don't know. Anyway, I, well, so. were you able to hear my my question? I, I heard everything you were saying. You just couldn't hear me yapping. <laughs> <laughs> but no. I heard the question. No, the the point is, what happens in companies, and I know because I was I was with one that now is 105 years old. I retired when it was 100 years old. Culture begins to build, and this culture, one of the biggest inhibitors to this, this change to this, uh, this new business platform that I called Global Integrated Enterprise. We just named the model, but you could call it anything. Today, it's more of a platform business model. It's how it's discussed in modern form. But fundamentally, uh, there's, there's cultural resistance because people become entrenched in the existing system. That's not just the IT statement of system, but it's the processes and how things are done in companies. That yes. is really, really hard to change. I mean, it's no different than I think you see which goes on in the political environment where leaders try to articulate a point of view that, you know, might be a way to the future that could be, you know, an attractive future, but there's a lot of resistance to that change, and therefore the U.K. pulls out of the E.U. I mean, um, regardless of the merits of the case, people uh, resist those kinds of changes if they don't see some personal benefit. Well, that's a societal statement, but it's also true for companies. And if people, the culture is really very difficult to change, and we had to, we struggled with that and worked very hard at that at IBM, 
as we transform the business. But you have to deal with the people aspects. I used to call it the software of transformation versus the hardware, which is kind of how you you, know, you, you can build your control systems, your management system, your, your process within the company. Well, I, I hear you loud and clear. I'm a sociobiologist by training, and I've worked with some of the largest corporations in the world on this very issue, which is cultural resistance. And uh, it's it's not easy. It's one of the toughest uh, obstacles that companies have to overcome because it's human nature to want to repeat things that have been successful. And actually, we want to repeat them long after they become unsuccessful. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so it's very, very difficult to uh, change that culture. And adding to that is the fact that analysts on Wall Street expect public companies to grow their earnings every three months, every quarter. <laughs> and and yes. it's been my experience that uh, working with some of these uh, large companies, this can lead to some very poor decision making. Uh, I would completely agree with that. And I would go back to what we did when I was working. Now, this is, you know, in 2006, we announced a, and we had our strategy, which we articulate to the investment community, but we built a financial model that would support the strategy. And we gave them a, a roadmap to 2010, which would have been four years. So we rolled that out with 2006 as the base year. And within that roadmap, I won't go through all the details, but it basically was growth scenarios, productivity scenarios, you know, acquisition strategies, et cetera, so they could at least understand where we were going with the strategy and that they could decide whether to invest in that strategy or not. But we gave them a point of view and expressed it in a financial model. Now, I would argue it was easier then to make the change, even though everybody wanted quarterly guidance. It yes. was easier then than it is today. So, so why do I say that? I say that because today... What's emerged is the investors are much more engaged, and I don't mean just activists. Uh, you know, everybody refer, looks at the activists that are most vocal out there, but it's more than the activists. You have passive funds and mutual funds today that are becoming much more engaged with management on what they think they should or should not be doing. So there's even more pressure today than there was when I was working. In fact, we kicked off a research project at CGE, you know, a little think tank, to study what is the best way for management and boards to respond to investors that are much more interested in the strategy and the business model? To your that's, point, that's right. Yeah, to your point, short-termism or the quarterly forecast. I mean, we resisted at IBM. Uh, we sold our story. The stock went from mid 80s to low 200s. So people would say it worked, right? Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, unique at the time. Yeah, I have to. I us. have to say that uh, you know, looking at profitability every three months is such a disincentive for long-term investments. It puts such pressure on companies to have to go sell a long-term program. And yet, if you don't have those long-term investments and, and you're just running from every three-month quarterly earnings report, uh, it's, it's practically uh, selling your future out. So I think something has to be done. Uh, and I, I don't see the analysts changing their behavior uh, to the point you know, investors are very active. They can turn on a dime now. Now, uh, we have to take another commercial break, but stay tuned. We'll be back after these important messages. You're listening to the Costa Report. Now, if you've been listening to the Costa Report, you know that I'm a big fan of wines by Caraccioli Cellars. And today I'm here with Scott Caraccioli, who's one of the brains behind the most memorable wines money can buy. So I have a question for you. How did your family get into the wine business? Um, You know, in 2006, my father, his brother and uncle were really playing with the idea of planting a vineyard. And planting a vineyard turned into making a bottle, turned into making sparkling wine when um, Michelle came into the picture. So it was really kind of an organic situation, us being in agriculture in the Salinas Valley, and then the extension of that went to grapes, and here we are today. To find out more about Caraccioli Wines, visit us at www.caracciolicellars.com or stop by our tasting room in downtown Carmel, California. That's Caraccioli Cellars, C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-I, Cellars, where one bottle is never enough. It's a festival, and you are invited. 
Hi, I'm Jeanette Larkin with the Scotts Valley Chamber of Commerce with an invitation to join us at the 17th annual Scotts Valley Art, Wine, and Beer Festival. You'll find something for the entire family. Adults will enjoy award-winning wineries, microbreweries, and margaritas. Olé! Kids will enjoy their own fun zone with mini horse rides, a petting zoo, a 50-foot spider mountain, and people-sized foosball. And everybody will enjoy Saturday's Cops and Rodders Vintage Car Show and canine demonstrations. And Sunday's Bring Your Dog Day. Pet Owner Lookalike Contest, Costume Parade and Tricks Contest, Live Music All Weekend on Three Stages, with big name bands like the Coppice Brothers, Joint Chiefs, Back to Nowhere, and many more. Pack up your family, friends, and neighbors and head to Scotts Valley Sky Park Saturday and Sunday for the 17th Annual Art, Wine, and Beer Festival. Smell all that food? This is Dan Hafley, Executive Director for O'Neill Sea Odyssey. The ocean is alive and we've got to take care of it. Jack O'Neill coined that phrase 20 years ago when he founded O'Neill Sea Odyssey's free ocean-going science program for area schools. So please join us for our 20th anniversary celebration on Saturday, September 17th at the Seymour Center in Santa Cruz. For more details and to make reservations, go to oso20th.org. Thank you. I wasn't prepared to be a caregiver to mom. But a little over a year ago, we realized she couldn't take care of herself without our help. And, well, how could I not be there for her? I had no idea how hard it would be and just what I would need to know. Things I never thought of, like how to improve her mood and, even for me, ways to stay positive. Luckily, I found the Caregiving Resource Center from AARP. It had articles about the basics that got me started, but also information about the hurdles I was facing in this new role. I could even connect with experts and hear from others who had been in my place. I know this road we're on isn't an easy one, but I'm really happy to have the extra help for her and for me. Caregiving Resource Center at aarp.org slash caregiving. Articles, tips, and tools to help you both care for your loved one and care for yourself. This message is brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. It's always open house at the Mike Young Real Estate Hour, and you are always invited to walk right in and join the discussion. Hello, I am Mike Young, and I love talking real estate with all the experts and with you. So get a jump on the Real Estate Weekend every Friday, 7 p.m. on the Mike Young Real Estate Hour, right here on Listen and Be Heard Radio KSCO. The Mike Young Real Estate Hour is brought to you by Thunderbird Real Estate, Real People Selling Real Estate, by Rick Williams at American Pacific Mortgage, and by Steve Manville at Farmers Insurance. Friday at 7. See you then. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, our guest today is former CEO of IBM, Sam Palmisano. So let's switch gears for just a moment and talk about something the uh, two leading presidential candidates are in complete agreement on, and that's the need to create more jobs. Now, I, I don't know of a single person who isn't in favor of generating more jobs, but we seem to be overlooking the fact that many technology and other specialized businesses have job openings they can't fill because there aren't enough qualified, experienced people, and they're not looking for people with fast food and coal mining and factory assembly experience. We we seem to be nursing this idea that somehow we could take a fast food worker and give them some uh, profitable role in a fast-moving, modern, global economy. Can, can you speak to that for a moment? Well, Rebecca, I think you've nailed it really well. At the end of the day, our biggest problem uh, with employment well, of course, it's the macroeconomic growth. I mean, you know, it's hard to grow employment with the economy going somewhere between one and a half and two percent now for eight years. So that hopefully the candidates can come up with a platform that adds economic growth, at least somewhere between, say, two to two and a half or maybe closer to three would be ideal. Right. Now, to your point, which is. The unemployment issue or the underemployment issue, because, of course, the government statistics are a little bit misleading, so let's talk about underemployment, where the people have not been able to find attractive jobs, uh, and they've taken themselves out of the workforce. It is a skill statement. Uh, I, you know, where was I? When I was working at the time, 
So let's go back to 2010. There were 3 million, this is the actual data, 3 million tech jobs open in the United States of America that were going unfilled, and that's because of skill matches. Um, and it was hard to fill those jobs. And a lot of those jobs are just basic technology jobs. Everybody goes, well, come on, no, you, you know, you got to be Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. That's not the case. I mean, in these 3 million jobs, there's a lot of project management, there's network architecture, there are web designers. There are a lot of high-volume jobs uh, in that skill set where you don't have to be you know, a genius or a phenomenal entrepreneur to go create a company. And so uh, what we did, uh, working with New York City in the beginning, now there's like 100 of these schools around the world, but we actually created a specialized program with Mayor Mike Bloomberg and Joel Klein, who was the chancellor of the school system. And the school went from nine through 14. So basically, you got an associate degree and you got your high school degree at the same time. But you came out uh, with, if you did well at the school and you passed the IBM exam, you were given the first right of refusal for a job, you know, a reasonable job paying around forty-five dollars or $50,000 a year. And now, like I said, they, that was the first school that was opened in Brooklyn. And then we did five in Chicago. There are literally like 100 of these schools now across the United States. And President Obama and Arnie Duncan have been great. And they've supported the program. They put money behind the program now, and it's expanding quite rapidly. But quite honestly, what the schools are, it addresses the need for these technical skills. I mean, in the old day, we call that an apprenticeship, right? Or, you know, and, but that's sort of become old-fashioned today. So we don't like to use those words. But fundamentally, that's what we're doing. We have schools that create skills of young people where the jobs are available. I, I think apprenticeship is the right word. I, I think we need apprenticeship programs because we're acting as though we'll create all these jobs and suddenly people will, I don't know, organically be qualified overnight to take the jobs when we already know they aren't. Yeah, and it's not just in tech. I mean, you had welders. There's high, highly skilled welder jobs that were open at the time. A lot yes. of basic industrial sector jobs are open. So a lot of these skilled crafts that pay well, I mean, they, they pay very well. I mean, I used to always tease people. The plumbers used to drive to our house in a Mercedes. Uh, you know, I, I've never owned a Mercedes, even as CEO of IBM. Uh, <laughs> that I couldn't afford one. Don't four remind five. me. I'm having my kitchen remodeled, and my electrician and plumbers all drive better cars than I've ever owned. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> so I, 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 I might have had it. Yeah, I might have uh, made a different career choice earlier on. Uh, from your perspective uh, as a, a leader of one of the largest companies in the world, uh, what can the next president of the United States do to help businesses become more competitive and also grow jobs here at home? You mentioned this this apprenticeship program. That might be one constructive uh, thing that a president could do. What else could they do? Well, I think the first thing that they need to do is understand that if you're going to grow the U.S. economy, you have to engage with the other growth economies of the world. You can't take the largest economies of the world, that's you know, U.S., China today, number two, Japan, Germany, etc., and decide you don't want to work with them if you're going to grow, because you can't grow... There's not enough consumption in the United States to grow this large economy without ex participating in exports. I mean, you know, a lot of, you have to do that. No different than China has to do that to grow their economy. We have to, we have to be part of a global economic system. So the commentary that goes on today, or the rhetoric, I guess, a better choice of words, is not helpful to solving economic growth. So fundamentally, you have to engage in the world and the world as it is, as I say, not as you wish it to be. And so, therefore, you have to work through issues around free trade agreements. You have to work through issues around retraining programs because there, there, there could be natural displacements, which gets back to the skills point. But to this point, I mean, I used to listen when I was working. People said there's no way you could take a displaced automotive worker and trade them in tech. So we said, really? They said, no, you, it's impossible. I said, well, let's try this. We opened a center in Dublin, Ohio, displaced automotive workers after, you know, the, after the crisis of 08, and we retrained them on how to program old-fashioned computers like mainframes and mini-computers. Mm -hmm. We hired like six or 700 of them working with the state. You know, they gave us a shopping center, and we put in classrooms and those kinds of things and trained the people. And we retooled those people, and they all got jobs as they got out of the, out of the training. So they can be trained. Right. I mean, just like they were trained to be production workers, they can be trained. 
But the key is to this whole thing is one is you have to have an economic platform that grows, engage the world. Also, I'm going to argue this is going to be controversial. A lot of people on this phone are going to find this statement controversial. But capital has to flow back to the innovation side of the economy, not financial markets. So we need money to flow out of things where they basically gamble all day in front of terminals and screens, right? Not that that's not a good living. I'm not opposed to it, you know, intellectually or anything. But there's too much money flowing into that space and flowing into the housing space. That money has to flow back into the innovation production economy, right? That will create jobs. I mean, these smart kids writing algorithms are not creating a lot of jobs, but people that are building things create lots of jobs, right? So you have to do that. Services create lots of jobs. So you need capital flows to shift. I say it's controversial because the incentive in the tax system today is heavily oriented to financial leverage. Uh, it, I, it is oriented, uh, right. heavily oriented. It's all oriented yeah. toward financial leverage, as far as right. I'm concerned. I, I don't see, you know, you're absolutely right. Innovation, at the end of the day, is America's brand. You know, you, we talk, you talk a lot in your book about brands, you know, global exactly. brands and, and, uh, and the importance of, of, uh, of treating those brands as assets. But when you think about America as a country, our brand is innovation, not not just our government and our laws and and uh, uh, and being a land of laws, but also in terms of our technology and the kinds of science uh, that that we've brought to the world. And you would think that, you know, when I take your principles, I could easily apply those business principles to government. Well, I think they do apply. But let's to your point. Let's think about this. Why was it, why was the U.S. so great at creating the technology industry, and all the internet, all the future technologies, the platform business models, because it was a collaborative model between university, usually research-oriented universities. A lot happened to be in Silicon Valley, but also a lot in Boston and other areas, and you know, around the country. Yes, uh, working with. Uh, business, you know, because they created these companies and business co- collaborated with the universities and you had uh, government collaboration as well. So it was a three-legged stool. That's what created, quite honestly, the Cisco's of the world and all the rest of that. Uh, Absolutely. It, and, and we need more of that. And yet we see uh, that that investment is really drying up. It's, uh, it's interesting that most of that investment now is coming out of venture capital, which ultimately winds up in the financial markets. We have to take our last break, but we'll be right back after we hear from the sponsors of today's program. So listen up. You're listening to the Costa Report. If you're wondering what to do with all that data you're creating, do I have an offer for you? Tableau is drag-and-drop software that people of any skill level can use to analyze and turn data into something actionable. That's right. I said actionable. And isn't that what all that data is for? With Tableau, you can connect to any data in virtually any format and visualize it on the fly. Databases, spreadsheets, even big data sources are instantly combined into usable charts, graphs, reports, and dashboards. People can analyze data and -and drag-and-drop drop at 10 times the speed of a traditional business intelligence system. But the most impressive thing about Tableau is that anyone can use it. And just to prove the point, you can get a free 14-day trial from Tableau just by mentioning you heard this ad. But do it now, because this offer won't last. For your free 14-day trial, visit Tableau at T-A-B-L-E-A-U dot com slash Costa. That's Tableau.com slash Costa. Tableau Software. What's your data trying to tell you? Big data is changing the way organizations work. From data-driven marketing and ad targeting to the connected car, big data is fueling product innovation and new revenue opportunities. It's creating a culture in which business and IT leaders join forces to realize value from all data. They infuse analytics everywhere and make speed a differentiator, gaining competitive advantage from faster, more informed decisions. Leading organizations are creating new business models, developing new roles, and defining new big data architectures, including an infrastructure that can manage and process exploding volumes of structured and unstructured data, in motion as well as at rest, while protecting data privacy and security. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business 
Visit www.ibm.com slash big data today. Hi, I'm Andy, the produce manager at Ben Lomond Market. This week, we have a lot of new items coming into the produce department. From New Mexico, we have the mild hatch chili peppers. These are a tradition for cooking in the Southwest. From Hollister, we have sugar pie pumpkins from Phil Foster Ranch. California new crop pomegranates and passion fruit are in. From Vietnam, we have exotic dragon fruit a good source of calcium, phosphorus, and vitamin C. From Watsonville, new crop Gizditch Ranch Gravenstein apples, great for making applesauce and pies. In organics, new items include local-grown Gravenstein apples, local-grown heirloom tomatoes, and from Peru, sweet Satsuma tangerines. Don't forget to check out our live basil plants and local-grown Mamataro tomatoes. Flavorful, fresh, and healthy at Ben Lomond Market. So, I'm a dog, and I just got adapted by this new human guy, and I'm starting to wonder how he got along without me. I mean, okay, something as simple as walking around the block. He's got this leash thing, and he puts me on one end and him on the other, and I'm just taking him around. I I think he's afraid of getting lost. Without that leash and me guiding him along, I don't think he'd find his way back home. But it's kind of cute. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. So we have someone who I don't believe has ever played at the boardwalk, um, Taylor Dane. I've never heard of Taylor Dane. Taylor Dane's big song is called Tell It to the Heart. Tell it to my heart. So cut me open. (laughs) Rip open my rib cage, my sternum, and just yell into my heart. Don't miss Good Morning Monterey Bay weekdays, 6 to 9 a.m. on KSCO AM 1080. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Sam Palmisano. And before the break, I was mentioning that the principles outlined in your new book titled Growing Global are transferable to governments. And you were making the point that commercial companies like Cisco, for example, uh, would not even exist today if the U.S. government, universities, and businesses had not collaborated to develop innovations like the Internet or GPS, mobile communications, and so on. Yeah, absolutely correct, Rebecca. And I would add to that, so... What we have, and I've, you know, this is my firsthand observation, having worked on the Cyber Commission uh, with Tom Donilon, who was National Security Advisor to President Obama, there's been this chasm created between government and business. I'm not talking generically business. I mean, to your audience out in California, we had a conference at Cal Berkeley with, you know, with a lot of the people from Silicon Valley there, a lot of the great tech leaders, and they feel that government is not working with them. Um, and my point back is that not only to solve the security issues around the Internet and the world that we live in, but beyond that, to get the economy growing together, we need to get these communities coming together. And it's like I said, it's the universities, the research establishment, it's the government agencies that actually support and fund a lot of these things that created DARPA, actually, because, you know, created the Internet. And a lot yes. of things you refer to, GPS came out of, DOD and defense spending and those sorts of things, and we need to get back together again. Now, there's natural reasons why these things have separated, but they're not, you know, they're not unsolvable. I mean, you know, they're not huge barriers or walls that have been built. It's just human beings that made some mistakes that have led to this you know, this breakdown, which I think is very easy to fix. We just need to put our get our minds around it. But to solve the cybersecurity issues. Um, you know, we'll make our recommendations to the current president and the future president, but you're not, the government will not be able to do this without academia, the research institutions, and the tech community. They cannot do this on their own, and they'll admit it because they don't have the skills or the capabilities. So the problems that we all worry about today are only going to get worse, and the solution is to get these three parties together if we're going to solve some of these issues, at least from the technological perspective. 
Well, when you think about it, the uh, cybersecurity issue affects everyone. It affects, certainly businesses want government to set up some kinds of standards uh, and get on top of this uh, uh, and uh, because it, it affects them economically. Uh, and when we start hearing that uh, these hackers are getting into the DNC records, it's not exactly confidence building. Well, you're absolutely right. And, and the fact of the matter is, I mean, the government has come up with architectures, NIST as an organization within the Commerce Department, that's come up with a framework that, that guides business, you know, right, to how to take the appropriate uh, system architecture design approaches to make their systems more secure. It's mostly designed, I'd say, for mid-sized to small to mid-sized companies. I mean, the large companies are much more sophisticated than this, I believe, already. Uh, but, but for mid, you know, mid-sized, small to mid-sized companies that aren't, it's a great framework that solves some of the issues. But there are broader issues that need to be addressed. Uh, to yes. your point, uh, the broader issues is that... Um, you know, things around, when things do occur, information sharing, you know, right? I mean, the ability to, in an open environment, if something's happening to a company and they see it, or if the, um, you know, the, the agencies that are there to protect individuals in the company see these activities, they share it with each other without the threat of litigation or lawsuits, right? Yes, that's uh, right. So that you can, because the purpose is these things are going to occur, it's not that they're not, you can't stop them from occurring. As they say, instead of robbing banks with guns, now you go on the Internet and you rob banks. I mean, it's going to occur. <laughs> uh, As we found well, out with Bitcoin. With Bitcoin. <laughs> the exactly. first big Bitcoin yeah. theft. <laughs> I mean, it's actually just easier today than it was back then. It, it, it is. You don't need a mask or a gun. No, you, you can do. You can you can you can commit uh, burglary from home. <laughs> and, but, the, but the point that I was trying to make is that you know you so you have to respond quickly to what's happened so it doesn't become a big problem. It stays a small problem, right? So one yes. of the issues that you get into this thing is information sharing. Uh, there's also some technical solutions that I believe the commission is going to recommend that require R&D, back to our, one of our earlier conversations around investment. Yeah. The short-term things, I believe, um, we'll, we'll continue to do our study, but this is a little bit of a guess on my part. Short-term issues, I think, are going to be addressed by the VCs of the world. They see the opportunity. They're going to create companies and solutions because that's what they do, and they do very well. However, the longer-term solutions that actually will get to the root cause of why it's easy to hack the DNC or Bitcoin or whomever uh, need to more significant funding, and the solutions are probably – if you listen to the scientists and the techies and about five to ten years out, that doesn't lend itself that's right. to the VC market. That's right. And the that's finance community is not in the business of long-term investments. We have to remember yeah. that. Uh, right. And so yeah. we need our government to be in that business and to and yeah. universities as well. Yeah, you broke the code. And that's where... Mm. And there are people that we're working with in the academic community, uh, some great schools, uh, a lot of the faculty, who I believe have a critical, credible strategy to solve some of these issues, and we'll make some recommendations to how we could build a collaborative model, you know, to have that occur. Um, but to your point, I mean, this is so much of the world and the U.S. commerce is dependent upon the Internet today. I, I think I saw a statistic. It's almost 10% of all commerce in the United States is done electronically or online. And it's, it's you know, and if you look at retail, it's the, the fastest growing companies in retail tend to be the Amazons of the world or the, Dig or the Jet, who was just bought by Walmart to the world, versus your traditional retailers. The Macy's are great companies, but just, you know, don't have that same level of connection to the consumer through their digital platforms. Now, one of the things that you talk about in your book is the impact these innovations and technologies have on uh, on this, uh, our day-to-day -day life, you know, the, the bigger impact. And as you know, there is a revolution going on in predictive analytics and artificial yeah. intelligence, and, and it's going to make it possible to head off many problems before they have an opportunity to become a problem. And this seems to me to be a prelude to a tectonic shift in how business and government leaders are going to be making decisions in the future. Can you speak to that for just a moment? Well, I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, by that, you take certain things um, in the area of personal health and the ability to monitor all of our key biometric in indicators and then therefore take corrective action before you know, the cancer, 
has spread so quickly. You know, you're at stage four, and we all know what the outcome is once we get to those advanced stages of any disease. I just happen to use cancer as an example. You go through areas of public safety, back to the the Internet, you know, back to this area of privacy and safety on the Internet. Mm-hmm. With this big data analytics, the key is to to monitor in very, very at machine speed, because these things are occurring at machine speed, so human beings can't keep up, but monitor these patterns that are occurring and, and then therefore take corrective action before they become big problems because the system itself corrects itself and those kinds of endeavors. And uh, we're, so we're looking at a world where we could potentially preempt negative outcomes, preempt terrorist attacks by simply at machine speed looking for patterns which indicate an event may occur. Yes, you could you could monitor that. Now, this is this is revolutionary. I don't know that people really are grasping right. the implication of being able to hat off a, a danger or a threat in advance. Right. Well, this is I'm going to drift a little bit in the public policy because you could through you know, through advanced technologies that exist today, that exist today. You don't have to do anything more in, in R&D. You could monitor all the sentiments in social media, all the various sources, and you could pre- prevent, you know, like you said, terrorists or riots or what have you from occurring because you know in advance because they organize online now. They absolutely do. Now, unfortunately, Mr. Palmasano, I could keep you here for several hours uh, picking your brain today, but we are almost out of time, so I'm going to have to uh, uh, wrap it up here. But I want to give the name of your book again. It's called Growing Global Lessons for the New Enterprise, and our guest this hour has been Sam Palmasano. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Palmasano. Thank you, Rebecca. Talk to you soon. If your station is leaving us after this hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Sam Palmasano, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com. My guest next week is the governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper, and he's going to be here to update us on the positive effects legalizing marijuana has had in that state and weigh in on the current race to the White House. Now stay tuned for another hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 